Hello friends, this is Andy Bannister. Thank you for downloading and for listening to Pep Talk. We are a wholly listener-supported podcast, and we'd love to have your support to make it possible for us to continue to produce episodes. You can get behind the show by visiting solas-cpc.org, that's solas-cpc.org, and click on the donate button. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And welcome to Pep Talk, the persuasive evangelism podcast. I'm Christy, and today I am joined, as ever, by my wonderful co-host, Andy Bannister. Andy, hi, how are you doing? I'm uh, doing well up here in Scotland today. It's scorching, Christy. It's 23 degrees in Scotland. That never happens. You, you just keep talking about this. You said this last time too, and I have to say, in London, um, North London, it's 32. So I'm still, I'm still claiming that weather superior card. That's still going to play that. But anyway, we are joined today by a wonderful guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, hi. Hello. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to do the math to figure out what those temperatures are in in Fahrenheit, which we still use. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, what would that be? Andy might have an idea. Not as hot as not as hot as you, I imagine. No, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure not. I'm sure not. <laughs> Shame, uh, Karen. You are. Let me see if I've if I've got this right. You are a research professor of English, Christianity, and culture at Southeastern Theological College. Is that right? That's correct. Wonderful. And I've I've loved your work. You've written booked and your recent book on reading well, uh, finding the good life through great books uh, hit our shelves in the UK. What was it 2018? A couple of years ago. Yeah, in October. And I absolutely loved it. Karen, why did you write that book to begin with? Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I, I loved uh, working on that book. It's a very precious to me. Um, well, you know, I, I teach English literature. I have been for 30 years. Uh, and I also um, am a Christian. I have been a Christian um, since I was a little girl. And um, I my first book, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, which was also about books, was really uh, about how I learned, I was really discipled by classic literature and learned to love God through books. And so that's been my my joy in life is to, to, to share my love of literature and my love of God, but more importantly, how they connect together. And that's what I try to do in this book as well. Like like you, Karen, I love I love books and love reading and where I'm sitting now surrounded by shelves of the, the things and also love God. How do how do those two things fit together? Because I sometimes come across Christians who sort of those those are different spheres. They have their love of literature, they have their love of God, but they haven't fitted those things together. You obviously have. How does that how does that work for you? Yeah, that is a great question. And even some people who like to read um, and are Christians often uh, will only read theological or philosophical works and don't have time for fiction, which is my great love is classical fiction. And I, what, it, what it really is, is that God is the word um, and we are made in his image. So we are creatures of language. And so all of the language that we use, whether it's talking to one another or reading or writing is an expression either, you know, whether good or ill of God's image in us and learning to read well and learning to love the written word is is cultivating that image of God in us. I mean, we as Christians are people of the word and God communicates to us through his book and through his son, the word. And so 
all language in that way is connected. Not all books are are inspired and they're not all the word of God, of course, but still anything where we are using this gift of language that God has given us is helping us to express that image more fully. Because hmm. your your latest book on reading well talks a lot about um, virtue formation through a number of brilliant um, classical works that you draw upon, and um, talking about patience, um, prudence. How what do you think it means for someone who doesn't yet know the Lord reading like a classical work of literature in terms of this um, being formed more into the the image of God as we encounter. Um, what it means to be made in his image through the word that's being communicated to us in literature. What does that mean for the, for the non-Christian who might be reading like the great Gatsby, for example? (laughs) No, that's, that's a great question. I mean, um, you know, I, I think it can all be summed up in in what Augustine says in on Christian teaching. He says that um, all truth is God's truth and that we should, you know, take truth wherever we can find it. And so in writing about virtues, of course, I drew heavily upon classical moral philosophers like Aristotle, who really is sort of set the, the standard for um, the idea of virtue and what constitutes human excellence. Many other thinkers have come after him. There are lots. There's lots of um, uh, literature, both ancient and medieval and modern, about the virtues from a Christian and from a non-Christian point of view. But they share so much in common and and give us so much truth about what it means to be excellent as human beings. And and even you know even the pagan philosophers understood that there's something different about human beings uh, from all other animals, um, and that's why they were so obsessed with with figuring out what it is that makes us different and what it is that makes us excellent. And so I just examined those those a number of those classical virtues and saw how not only we can learn about them through these great works of literature, but even just reading these works of literature and discerning and interpreting them is a practice in virtue itself. Do you know, as you, as you were talking there, uh, Karen, one of the things that struck me is that, you know, I think we live in a, a culture here in the West where, you know, many people have forgotten the great, the classics. They don't, they don't read as widely as they once did. Everything is very immediate uh, with uh, with social media and so forth, but then I was also reminded of something that you know C.S. Lewis once said about being allowing the kind of when you read older books and older literature, it allows the fresh winds of the ages to kind of blow through your mind, right? Because you can you can allow yourself to be critiqued by somebody standing outside your own culture. Is there something in that? Do you think that actually opening ourselves up to you know the classics, the older literature, is an important corrective to some of the trends of our age that we live in? Oh, absolutely. There's another sort of great aphorism about um, the great books. And this it's that goes along the lines of that we don't read the great books, they read us. Um, because they do, you know, they, they sort of hold up a mirror um, to ourselves, and we can see where that where the reflection is good, and maybe where we're distorted, um, they can reveal moral blind spots and cultural blind spots. Um, and even in a more practical way, as we're facing this global pandemic, um, I have found one of the greatest divides in the way that people think about this pandemic is the one between the people who have a broader, deeper sense of history and culture, whether through literature or through other reading, um, just history, and those who don't. Because that that's one of the gifts that I, 
that literature gives us. My, my specialty is, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century British literature. And you can't read more than a few pages of those works and not encounter the kinds of plagues and pestilences and, and short lifespans and, and uh, miserable lives that people existed, had throughout much of human existence. And we're so spoiled in this moment in the 21st century where we, it seems like we've conquered almost everything that we're so shaken by, you know, a 100 year virus, which is, you know, is just part has been part of human existence um, since we've, we've been on this earth. And so I think that wider perspective is just something that can give us a greater sense of, of rootedness and calm, even in a moment like this. Hmm. What do you think it might look like to use some of these great books to give those who don't know Jesus that wider perspective of of what it means to live a good life? I mean, have you ever used these evangelistically? Do you have any tips as to what that might look like? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think one of one thing to understand is that because we are all creatures made in God's image, we all have this desire um, to will we'll draw on C.S. Lewis again, you know, his famous picture of um, his famous idea that, that we were not made for this world. And so when our, you know, we're restless and we have other desires, it shows us that we're made for another world. We all share that. And so what literature does is it, it, it shows us how, I mean, every good story is the story of someone who desires one thing, goes in pursuit of it, and then discovers what it is that he or she really needs. And so the same pattern of a quest for the good life, a quest for what is a person desires and in the process finding out what he or she really needs is the journey that we're all on. Um, and we can see through literature um, the kinds of mistakes that can be made um, and the kinds of, and, and avoid them ourselves. So um, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of Christians tend to think that we have to read explicitly Christian books in order to kind of communicate the gospel. Um, one of the books that I write in about in on reading well, I think is one of the best examples of the gospel in literature. And that's a tale of two cities, um, a famous work that, now, you know, of course Dickens was at least nominally a Christian. He had some, you know, doctrinal irregularities, but he wasn't writing to, to save people. He wasn't writing to give the gospel. He was writing, he, truth about human existence and human nature and it's a story of the gospel of a man who gives his life for others julie the other thing that that struck me as you were talking there uh karen i've got some i was in i lived in canada for six uh years before coming back to the uk and i had some dear canadian friends who'd figured out a really kind of a powerful evangelistic tool for them was they love literature and so they started a book group um based in their home and uh, largely working through, as you would say, the kind of the great books, the classic books, but also in time expanding that circle slightly. And they said they did, deliberately didn't populate the reading list with Christian books. They just picked books that were classics, that were well known and that naturally raised um, spiritual questions. In fact, I think A Tale of Two Cities was one of them. And they said the conversations it opened up uh, with friends and with neighbours through the pages of literature was, uh, was incredible. And so I think there really is a, 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 an opportunity here that maybe we're missing. That's an excellent idea. My, uh, my church actually asked me to uh, do a community book club last year. Um, 
And it it was so wonderful. I just, we met, you know, in a place off the church grounds at a, a local coffee shop and read uh, Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, another one of my mm-hmm. favorites. Um, and it, it really is a way of, of inviting anyone to come in, but also a way of getting at the great questions, because that's what makes great books great is that they do address these universal human questions about who we are, why we exist and what's gone wrong and, and what solutions there might be. Um, And they ask those questions and allow us to kind of, um, you know, they tell the truth, but tell it slant, I guess, in the words of Emily Dickinson. (laughs) Just to um, take a slightly different slant (laughs) or angle um, on this is that um, I think one of the ways in which we we first connected, Karen, was through social media. Uh, you have a wonderful presence on on Twitter and on Facebook and and Instagram, and I've just loved kind of learning how you how you engage with friends, but also um, people who are quite critical of of what you're doing and what you have done. And I just wondered how do you how do you make the most of social media? So make the most of how do we kind of how can we be a presence of um, being able to communicate salt and light in those areas where particularly for Twitter, it can be very toxic. <laughs> Are there any things that you've learned? <laughs> very toxic. Might be the understatement of the year. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a great question. And thank you for asking. I, it's, it, you know, it's, it's almost an, People tell me how good I am at social media, especially Twitter. And it's like, it's actually embarrassing. Like, yes, I have the gift of Twitter. <laughs> One of the Maybe. lowliest gifts in, in the kingdom. Um, but I, I think it starts with something that's so easy to forget is to realize that behind every social media profile, maybe excluding the Russian bots, um, <laughs> is a real per- is a re- or maybe not is a real per- is a real person. It's so easy to I mean we we've just distanced ourselves from these profiles and we just see them as electronic, you know, um, avatars. Um, so I my my cardinal rule of social media interaction is to interact with that person as though they were in the room with me. And if we were all in a little party together at someone's house, I would not be rude or I would not walk up to a stranger and say, why did you say that? Or you're wrong. I mean, that is not how we interact with one another when we are present with one another. And if we can treat one another on social media that way, we will go so far. We, we need to put the humanity back in it. Another thing that I like to remember, because <laughs> I'm not always treated that way in kind. <laughs> um, another thing that I always remember is that it's not just about the single person I might be uh, going back and forth mm. with on Twitter. I mean, I have a lot of followers. So there are people who are following along, even if they're not saying anything, they are witnessing and they are watching um, and they are learning whether it's a good lesson or bad. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about social media. That's kind of a, a reminder about how the real world works, actually. Well, it is the, sort of the real world, is that people are watching our words. They're watching our demeanor. They're watching our behavior, even when we don't realize it. And so what a great place for us to be reminded about how important our witness is, how it goes with us everywhere, even when we don't know, um, because people 
people aren't telling us that they're watching and observing. Um, and if we think of social media that way and that we, we don't need to have the instant gratification, which of course it's built on, but if we can just know that people are watching and we are witnessing, we could use it so much more powerfully than I think we realize. There's so much good wisdom in there. And I actually, it was really funny when you were giving your first half of that question, Karen, I was going to say, I was going to raise a question about the second thing you said, and then you said it. So you beat me to it, which I think is is really, really exciting. And um, to what extent, um, you know, I suppose put it this way, what are some of the advice that you would give to, to Christians who perhaps aren't on social media, who kind of feel they, they should be? Should they be on there? Uh, is it for everybody? Because I, mean, I noticed that you you sort of self-deprecatingly said you have the gift of, of Twitter, but you clearly have an ability. I love your profile. I just looked it up while you were talking, going, that's you and the dog. That's quite a, that's, that's hilarious. Um, but yeah, people who are not on social media, should they get on there or should you leave it to people who really, that the Lord has anointed them for, for being able to engage with the bear pit? Oh, wow. I am, I'm glad you asked that question. You know, I miss my life before social media greatly. Um, there is a sacrifice mm. that you make in attention span and time invested. I really do think of it as, as a as a mission field and as a ministry. And I and I you know I do think that it is some sort of weird gift that that God has given me. And I don't want it sometimes, but I really feel that it's a responsibility I have. So. Um, I don't think it's for everyone, and I think it's perfectly fine and maybe even better to stay off of it because I've lived long enough to know what life was like before and what, what life was like after. And so I do think it needs to be treated as a almost like a calling or as a mission field, and really people need to go before the Lord and 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 and. and be prayerful about how much time they should spend there. I don't, you know, I mean, almost everyone has an account whether they use it or not. Um, but uh, it is something to to take more seriously, I think, than we tend to, um, because it is a thing to go back to kind of what we were I was talking about in on reading well. It is a formative experience. Social media forms our character and our personality and our thinking, and if we aren't intentional about how it does that, it can it can form us in very bad ways. Um, and so. We need to be careful. And it's, it's not just forming us, it's forming our whole culture. I mean, we are polarized as much as we are because of the way that social media works. Now, that's a whole philosophical and technological discussion that we probably don't have time for. There's a lot written about it. But just to think about that, to think about how it is a form, that's what media are, it is a form. And so it does form us. And that's something we have to keep foremost in our minds. Sorry, just a very quick um, question as we come into land now. What kind of things do you keep in mind for yourself, Karen, um, knowing that social media is forming you as you're engaging with it? How do you how do you interact with that formation? You know, it's something I definitely still struggle with, again, because um, because I'm old enough to have lived a good chunk of my life before and then after. And so I think about a lot. And so I just I just really just reading, reading books. Um, I don't even read, I don't read Kindle. I don't read any electronic books. And I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's, it's the, 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 the written word on the page that I can hold in my hand and feel, um, spending time that way is a counteraction to social media as well as it, it, other forms of balance. Like 
you know, physical exercise, being outdoors. Um, it's all part of a well-rounded, balanced life, which I think is what God designed us for. Um, but again, we have to be intentional about. Well, well, Cara, this has been an absolutely kind of fascinating conversation. We've covered literature, we've covered social media, we've gone from the sort of you know three hundred years ago right up to the present day. Thank you for you know sharing uh, your your passions and your uh, your calling and gifting with us. And I hope listeners have found it helpful. So uh, thanks a lot for for being on the show. And uh, Christy and I will be back uh, in two weeks' time with another guest. Thanks for listening to Pep Talk.